Good morning. I'm Nayaswami Bharat, and this is Nayaswami Anandi. And it's our great joy to celebrate Sunday service with you. We hope that you are sheltering in place safely, healthy, and feel the blessing of God's light surrounding you. May we all go through these times together with greater strength and greater attunement with God so that we can share that with everyone we meet and the whole world. I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light. Our reading for this week is uh, To Each According to His Faith. These are commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita written by Swami Kriyananda taken from the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. In the Gospel of St. John, chapter 3, we read, Everything that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his, de- that his deeds, deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. It is a common experience shared by most people that when a person errs, he experiences a desire to hide that error from his conscience instead of holding it up for purification. Error clutches its misdeeds to itself and resists correction, though it is only in a state of purity that we can achieve perfect freedom. It requires an act of will to offer that awareness up to the light and to hold it there until one's inner darkness is completely dissipated. For every state of consciousness has as its own attra- for every state of consciousness has its own attractive power, and the more we allow the attraction to act upon us, the more we attract to ourselves the objective circumstances and experiences natural to it. Our faith is the attractive power of our underlying state of consciousness. Goodness attracts goodness. It takes goodness even to see goodness. Evil attracts evil. And it takes evil even to see evil, that is, to take special note of its existence. Whatever there is in you of darkness or light, offer it up to the heights. It is the supreme light alone we will find salvation. Accept nothing less in yourself as your lasting reality. As the Bhagavad Gita says in the 12th chapter, Cling thou to me, clasp me with heart and mind, so thou shalt dwell surely with me on high. But if thy thought droops from such heights, if thou best weak to set body and soul upon me constantly, despair not, give me lower service, seek to reach me, worshiping me, with steadfast will, and if thou canst not worship steadfastly, work for me, toil in works pleasing to me. For he that laboreth right for love of me 
shall finally attain. But if in this thy faint heart fails, bring me thy failure. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh. Again, I'd like to begin by reading from Whispers from Eternity, a magnificent book of prayers and poems by Paramahansa Yogananda. This is called Nothing Can Steal My Love for Thee. No loud or whispered words of prayer shall steal away my love. With the soul's unspoken language, I will express my hunger for thee. Thy voice is silence, and through my silence, thou must speak to me and tell me thou hast loved me always, though I knew it not. This uh, reading today from The Rays of the One Light is very beautiful, but I have to say the excerpt from the Bhagavad Gita that begins, cling thou to me, clasp me with heart and mind. This is surely one of the dearest parts in the Gita, and it is so well, in just 12 or 14 lines, it really expresses the entire um, message that we need to find God. And I want to talk more about it, but first I wanted to read what Yogananda said about those lines. He said, these lines are what make the Gita so sweet, sympathetic, and useful in healing the manifold sicknesses of suffering humanity. Isn't that true? So the Gita starts off by showing us the heights. Um, Dr. Peter once asked Swamiji, is it hard to find God? And Swamiji said with a, in a, twinkle, with a twinkle in his eye, oh no, not at all. All you have to do is bring 100% of your concentration to the spiritual eye. And that's what the Gita is saying, but within, with the undertone of the love involved, that if we can bring 100% of our energy to cling to God, that's really all we need to do. But then it says, but what if you can't do that? Now, it's not giving you a choice, either or. What he's saying, if you can't do that, do this, and it's going to help you arrive at that final state of glory. So if you can't 100% hold your mind at the spiritual eye, then... Um, Worship me with steadfast will. That means practice your meditation, practice yoga. Do the practices that help you interiorize your consciousness and lift them to the spiritual eye, creating that channel of energy to flow there, 
to help you move toward the eventual goal of clinging to me. And then, you may not be able to do that. Give me service. If you can put 100% of your energy into everything that you're doing, everything, and see that that is service to God, everything you're doing is for the love of God, that's going to strengthen your energy to be able to concentrate, to be able to have the devotion to arrive at that goal of cling to me. And the final offering that the Gita gives, if in this thy faint heart faileth, give me your failure. Now some may think, oh, well, this is for the losers. <laughs> if you can't, if you can't do the other things, well, okay, just give me your failure. But that's not it at all. This last instruction is as important as the other three. Because what he's saying is, I never want you to be separate from me. I don't really care if you fail, if you meditate, if you succeed, if you are generous, if you're mean, I don't care about any of it. I just care that you never separate yourself from me. And so this, give me your failure, is exceedingly important. And I'd like to focus on that today. Because I find that um, among devotees, that is not any easier than any of the other choices. Um, most devotees have learned that when they do something well, they're to, in or, they're to feel that God did it through them. And they have some sense of that. Okay, God did that through me. But when they blow it, or we blow it, <laughs> it's harder to say God did that through me. Even there is a uh, resistance to thinking that we should do that. And so, and yet it's very, very important because the key thing is that we never, never separate ourselves from God and that we feel that he knows everything, he is everything, and that we want to stay in that unity with him. You know, most of us grew up here in the West with, um, some grew up with some fairly intense religious upbringings, the whole concept of being sinners and so forth. And I realized that I didn't grow up with that type of religion of you're a sinner. But I grew up with a, another type that had the same seductive uh, delusion inherent in it. And the idea that I recalled in my mind was that we were striving to be acceptable in the eyes of God. I think that was the language it was used, that we'd be acceptable in the eyes of God. I don't remember that love was actually expressed in there, but, you know, meeting the standard. And in order to be acceptable in the eyes of God, you had to do the good things, you had to avoid the bad things. Well, in other words, you were always being watched and assessed and measured. And if you did it okay, then that's okay. Then God would accept you. Now, if you didn't, well, who knows what would happen, but certainly not God would, certainly God wouldn't accept you. So that idea of conditional everything is kind of ingrained into us. And I was reflecting again 
uh, also about, think about Santa Claus. You know, here's this happy thing in a child's life, Santa Claus with the rosy cheeks. And what does that song say? Santa Claus is coming to town. You better watch out because he knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake and he knows when you've been bad and he knows when you've been good. Oh my God. <laughs> so there you are. There's an omniscient force that's watching you all the time and measuring and counting and assessing. And if you aren't good enough, well, you know, no Christmas presents for you. So this idea, not simply that we're sinners, but that we're, we're always striving. What we get, we have to earn. But in the life of the saints, you don't find that. Even in the, in the, in the New Testament, you don't find that standard at all. Last Sunday uh, was Easter, and Davy alluded to this during the Sunday service, but I've been thinking about it this week. You know, the apostles of Christ, the closest disciples, Master said they were prophets, even Judas. And I assume a prophet means at least a saint. These men went on to, after the death of Christ, to and the resurrection of Christ to perform miracles in his name, to spread the teachings of Christianity into the world. They were great, great souls. And yet, what do you find at the end of uh, Christ's life? He asks his disciples to stay awake with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they fall asleep. And he comes back and he says, excuse me, could you please stay awake with me? And they fall asleep again. And he doesn't get frustrated. He just says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then, the, then Christ is taken. The disciples run away. Um, uh, no, I'm not sure am I in the right relationship to the microphone. Okay. Um, he predicts that Peter will deny him three times. He absolutely knows that Judas will uh, turn him over to uh, the authorities and he, but also with Peter, he says, you know, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, oh, I could never do that. And of course he does. But you never, through all of it, find any sense of Christ just going, I'm fed up. I mean, enough with these people. Look at these, look at the people that I've come, I've given my life to train these people. And now they are actually asking for my crucifixion. You would think he might say, well, too bad. <laughs> I came and you didn't see it. But what does he say? He says to God, forgive them. They know not what they do. So the message of the masters is, I don't really care what you do. I expect you to make mistakes. That's not a problem. All I ask is that you just keep going. Keep moving forward with love for me. You find the same thing in autobiography of a yogi. And I, I think it actually confuses people and they don't understand who Master was because of the way he wrote autobiography of a yogi. You find all of our gurus, well, not Babaji, but um, Lahiri has to be corrected by Babaji. Sri Yukteswar has to be corrected by Lahiri and Babaji. And Master, at, at various points, does things that are so endearingly familiar, just the kind of things that we do, just to show us, look, this is the way it is. It doesn't matter. Just keep moving forward. One of the best 
examples is when he's been with Sri Yukteswar for six months and what happens? He gets frustrated with his spiritual progress. He's not growing fast enough. Have you ever had that feeling? Probably. So he's showing us. And what does he do? He runs away to the Hamayas to go deeper in God. Of course, he was at the feet of his channel for God, but, and he knows Sri Yukteswar didn't want him to leave, but he leaves. And he comes back. Sri Yukteswar greets him as if nothing has happened. Let's go get something to eat. And basically says to him, I, I don't care what you do. I'm just here to help you. And it's such a beautiful moment. They stand with tears shining in their eyes. Now, just a few days later, Master is sitting in Sri Yukteswar's uh, study trying to meditate. And he says, I really had trouble meditating. My mind was just so disturbed. Have you ever had that problem? Perhaps. And so then he's sitting there trying to meditate. Sri Yukteswar calls him from a distant balcony, and he's rebellious. Now, mind you, he just got back from being rebellious already. Now he's rebellious again. And so he doesn't answer. And Sri Yukteswar calls him again. He doesn't answer. And finally, Sri Yukteswar says, Makunda, I'm telling you to come. And he says, sir, I'm trying to meditate. And of course, Sri Yukteswar knows everything about him. And he says, I know how you're trying to meditate with your mind like leaves disturbed by the wind. Come here now. And what happens? He grants him the greatest thing Yogananda has wished for all his life, an experience of oneness in God, samadhi. So the message is there. It doesn't matter. God doesn't expect us to get it right. He just expects us to keep moving forward. All the delusions that we fall into, he created for us. How can he get mad if we fall into them? So we just need to work on that love. I had a very interesting experience and, and quite helpful, and I hope I can communicate it to you. It happened in 2006. Bharat and I went to India for a Kriyaban retreat with Swamiji. He was very ill for most of it, so we hardly, we hadn't had a chance to greet him. And near the end of our stay, we went over to his house to deliver something we'd brought for him from America. And he called us in to the dining room where he was with some friends. And I sat at the table directly across from him. And at a certain point, he talked to the person next to me, to my left, with a lot of energy. And so I was turned to look at that person and listen to everything that Swamiji was saying to him. And it was very wonderful and inspiring. And then I turned back, expecting Swami would still be looking to my left. He was looking straight at me. He was motionless. He was completely neutral and still, just staring right through me. And obviously, the first moment was a little bit of a surprise. But what I found was there was a feeling, it only lasted about three seconds, but it was a feeling of amazing comfort. In uh, Master's teachings, he says that God manifests in each being as the soul. God is present in each of us as the soul. And the soul is the witness of everything we are doing. What I felt in that moment with Swamiji was he was witnessing me. He was seeing 
everything. And it was fine with me. It was just wonderful because I knew it was okay with him. He was just witnessing it. And that's what Master says about the soul. It has gone through millions of lifetimes with us. And you can imagine that in that many lifetimes, they weren't all beautiful. They weren't all kind. There may have been evil. There may have been horrible mistakes. The soul was always there witnessing, not criticizing, not frustrated, just available. Available until at some point we began to seek that part of our being so when we're thinking about ourselves, what, what happened after that event, since that time, what I've done is I've tried to witness myself with my guru, with Yogananda, to if something comes up, those little ego, annoying things about your ego that are still there after decades of spiritual practices, little tense points inside of yourself, little stumbling blocks. I try to just stand with master and witness it and say, I'm witnessing it. I'm relaxed. I see it. I'm open. It's not me. It just keeps popping up again and again. And I'm here with you and I give it to you. So when the Gita says, if you fail, give me your failure. If you can, try and give it in that spirit. Not like, oh, please, you've got to help me. But okay, here it is. I give it to you, you'll take it. I don't know when you're going to take it. It may take another few lifetimes, but I know you're going to take it. I trust in that love. So Master said to us so many times different things to share about his love. He said, I don't ask that you overcome delusion. I ask that you resist it. If we resist it, he will do the overcoming of delusion. We can't overcome delusion. He also said, very sweet, he said, if someone turns against me and leaves my path, I let them go. But if they turn away from me, leave the path, and then they come back and ask my help, I will do anything for them. You see how beautiful that is? The guru is not measuring like our early training in religion. The guru is unconditional. He's just, I'm here to give you love whenever you're ready for it. Swamiji told a story that was very meaningful to him, and I've been trying to take it to heart myself. He said that he, um, when he was a young uh, monk with Master, he, Master would often have him in the same room when he would entertain guests. And so this famous musician came to Master, and he was quite a worldly fellow, but he was totally charmed by Master. He felt his love, he felt his acceptance, he was inspired by him. And so he liked to come visit him. And Master said to him, I want Reverend Walter, that's Swami, I want you to meet Reverend Walter and have a lesson with him in um, uh, energization and, and meditation so you can learn our teachings. So they made an appointment and the man didn't show, didn't call, just didn't show. Then the next time Swami saw him, he was once again in Master's presence. And it was again the same love feast as always. And again, meet Reverend Walter. And again, 
no contact, but he just didn't show up. And meanwhile, Swami had to drive quite a ways to get to the Hollywood Temple to meet him. And uh, this had gone on quite a few times, and Swami was beginning to feel very annoyed. He felt, this man is taking all of Master's time, he's also taking my time, and he's not sincere. He's just there for all the love that Master pours into him. It's not right. And he was starting to feel very righteous about it. And so he went to Master and he said, you know, and he told him the story. And Master said, shook his head somberly, he said, I'll talk to him. So the next time the musician shows up, Swami's there, Master's there. Swami comes in very, in his spine, very severe, stern. He's, he's ready. He's centered. Master's going to lower the boom. This is important. Meanwhile, Master greets the man, total love, total warmth and affability and the usual fun, joyful time. And, and the man leaves, as usual, in, in a blissful state. And Master turns to Swami and he says, how cold you were to that man. How would it have been if I had treated you like that? And Swami, when he told that story, I, I, I wondered, from the way he told it, I wondered if it was a turning point in his life. Because we never saw in him that, that I'm going to withhold until you get it right. He really was always that same way to us that Master was to the disciples. I'm going to keep encouraging you wherever you are. And if I do that, you'll come around. It may take a long time. But eventually, it'll happen. And that's the, the opportunity we have to emulate, not just to be open to the love of the Master, but to try and emulate it so that it goes deep inside of ourselves, that the world really doesn't need us to assess and measure and judge it. It needs us to accept and love it. I, was going to, I want to end with one, another story about Swami, but... Before I do, I wanted to tell you and remind you that this coming Tuesday, April 21st, is the anniversary of when Swamiji left his body in liberation. We call it his moksha, which means liberation. Uh, and um, we celebrate that with meditation every year. So this year, we're going to have a, a guided meditation led by Jyotish and Devi from 6.30 to 9.30. And we hope that you can join for that, even for part of it, just come and, and honor that inspirational life that meant so much to, to all of us, even those of you who don't know him or been highly, highly uh, influenced by Swami Kriyananda. But I wanted to end with a story again, an experience I had that I feel like if I can communicate in the right way, I hope you understand that it's really a message for you. Um, Swami Kriyananda died in 2013, and the last time he said anything to me was what I'm going to share with you. It was in 2012. There was a, a celebration, a small, a small sort of celebration, and at the end he was blessing people. Now, what I've seen in myself, and certainly in many devotees, is that it's very, very easy to uh, notice our shortcomings and to be aware of that we don't measure up and so forth and so on. And this is certainly something that I've battled with. And um, in the case of Swami, he knew that I 
I was aware of the many times I'd misunderstood him and hadn't done what he'd asked and so forth and so on. So I'm, that's the prelude to this thing that he did for me on, in 2012. After my blessing, what he said to me, and I'm saying this to you so that you absorb it into yourself. What he said to me is, thank you for the love you've given me all these years. Now, what did he mean? Some of you who don't even know him. Swami to us was a channel for God, a channel for Master. So he's saying, thank you for the love you've given to God all these years. Now, thousands of people have loved Swami all these years. And he didn't say that my love was any better than anybody else's. He just said, thank you for that. And I think what he was saying to me is, I want you to focus on how you've loved me. I want you to forget entirely about all the times that you didn't feel you measured up. And I'm saying that and passing that on to you because I was thinking, even if you say, but I've only loved God for one hour in my entire life, well, that's the hour. <laughs> that's the hour to focus on. That's the only hour God cares about is when we were loving him. So I'd like to end our service right now by having you take a moment. This is going to be your assignment for this week, should you choose to accept it. I want you to think of a time in your life where you have felt such a total love of God Something that pops into your mind, maybe something that seems very, very trivial. But if there was a time you can identify where you felt a total love for God, ideally where you felt that God loved you in return. But during this week, let everything else go and just keep your mind on I have loved God, I do love God, and this is how, and this is the only thing in my life that's important. So, God bless you.
Kingdom. 